The Interchange is brought to you by Schneider Electric. Did you know that we've built more microgrids in the U.S. than anyone else? These self-contained electrical networks allow you to generate your own electricity on-site and use it when you need it most. Keep your power on during a grid outage. Store electricity and sell it back during peak demand times. Integrate with renewables such as wind and solar. With a microgrid, you get energy control on your terms. See what's possible at www.se.com backslash US backslash microgrid. I think those kinds of dollars flowing into the individual residential community will also drive innovation. If you can get more consumers and more residential players investing in upgrades, investing in retrofit, that's going to be good for the technology ecosystem that builds and, and scales those products. This is The Interchange Recharged. I'm David Bam Miller. The race to decarbonize is well underway. Every day I see new initiatives and technologies which could solve some of the biggest challenges we face in getting to net zero. It's a learning curve for me, but I'm all in and I hope you are too. So join me as I navigate through the world of clean technology and together we can learn something new on every episode of the podcast. Did you know that roughly 40% of our total food production is thrown away before it reaches plates? Most of that is due to poor food storage. In today's episode, we investigate the world of waste with Monik Suri, founder and CEO of Therma, a tech startup working to eliminate food waste and improve energy efficiency across restaurants, retailers, and schools. Monik, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. So tell me a little bit about Therma. I mean, how you guys came up with the idea, how you started. Yeah, we were working on uh, improving workflow and, and trying to reduce waste and, and, and lost time around the food industry. We were trying to improve how businesses and operators use technology. The company and the product I was building prior to Therma uh, called Collaborative Inspector Co-Inspect was focused on safety and compliance. We were watching users around the country using our Co-Inspect app and saw that most of what they were checking was temperature. They were trying to make sure that all the product and all the perishables were kept in the right temperature zones. And they were using logbooks and clipboards to do that. And we thought, you know, okay, we can digitize this. We can take a clipboard and put it on a mobile app and a tablet. But ultimately, if we can automate it, if we can actually eliminate the need for people to check this stuff in the first place, that would be a much better solution, much better solved. So Thermo was a, you know, I guess a, a V2, if you will a second attempt at uh, improving and modernizing work around temperature and quality and safety management. And so we built a sensor-based solution, and that's how Therma, or temperature, humidity, energy, remote monitoring application was born. And who's your client base? I mean, who who do you go after and who does this benefit the most? Yeah, we work with uh, folks across the supply chain from, you know, farm to fork, production to consumption. We have uh, operators of large you know, regional and, and national brands, you know, so folks, you know, like uh, McDonald's, Burger King, Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, Domino's, White Castle, franchisees, and, and, and even some franchisors. Uh, these are restaurant chains, in some case, hospitality groups. We work with some hotel operators, Wyndham, Hilton, Marriott. Uh, and then we work with, uh, with growers and, and even folks that are in the production environment. So we work with some farms, um, you know, a couple of dozen. Uh, around the country. We work with brewers and great people, super fun clients to have. Site visits always welcome. And then we also work with a lot of uh, food service operators in other industries. For example, um, schools and universities. We have 
several hundred schools, K through 12, around the country, uh, some major universities, uh, some hospitals, and, and related. And, and how does the technology work? Think of this as an IoT or Internet of Things uh, based application. So we have sensors uh, that work uh, remotely and wirelessly uh, using local battery power. They're able to collect and send signal, particular temperature and humidity readings, continuously from the inside of refrigeration. Whether it's a small piece of refrigeration or a large format warehouse, those sensors can collect that data and get it out through the side of the fridge or the freezer reliably and wirelessly. And that's one of the things that wasn't possible until recently. The signal gets collected, sent back uh, through a hub or a gateway back to the cloud. And there we can run analytics and we can report on that information. So we can find patterns, we can flag issues or uh, let companies or operators know when it seems like there's a problem or what they would call an excursion, something that might cause a spoilage event or a piece of equipment looking like it's going to go down um, and, and you know, disrupt service or cause you know, hundreds or thousands of dollars of, of inventory loss. So typically, the application is used by the, the end consumer uh, in a mobile interface. You know, most people are looking at this as an alarm for their inventory and, and a way to kind of monitor their assets remotely. And most folks look at it from a mobile app standpoint. And generally speaking, we want this to be as simple and as peace of mind oriented as possible. So most folks don't think about Therma unless there's a problem, you know, like with an alarm or insurance product. They generally don't want to be thinking about stuff unless there is an issue. And then we generate reports or notifications, start escalating those via email, text, and or phone call, and getting folks um, you know, to get ahead of issues or to, to catch issues, particularly when they happen on nights and weekends. That's the core application. The sensors are drop-in-place. So these are about the size of half a deck of cards, and it can be self-set up. You know, it's a do-it-yourself. You don't need a technician. There's no installation, no wiring. And so beyond just an event, such as food spoilage or something like that, it also creates the ability to have a more efficient use of energy. It does. It does. Yeah. There's a couple of ways in which we're um, reducing the energy footprint of refrigeration. Uh, one uh, is that we're able to see what's going on with temperature in real time. Historically, most businesses would overcool. So when you don't know what's going on continuously and reliably because you're not there, uh, you, you don't want to spoil product. You don't have to safety or compliance issue. So most folks will just set the thermostat colder than, than legally required or than quality indicates. And they do that to avoid the chance of any spoilage. Because we can see the temperature continuously, uh, we're able to make recommendations. That, hey, you can actually raise the set point a couple of degrees and you're fine. We can tell you if anything is going to happen or if the temperature starts to rise. There's a savings there and, and, and a way to reduce the energy footprint. And so that's one uh, way in which we're helping to reduce you know, energy consumed. Uh, the other and kind of more ambitious is we're starting to build a second layer of the product. We're starting to build a controls layer where you can actually turn refrigeration on and off uh, remotely. And so this second layer of the product uh, allows a user who owns refrigeration to actually reduce the amount of energy the piece of refrigeration uses or reduce the amount of refrigeration going on when energy prices rise or when the utility needs the extra power or when there's nothing inside the fridge or freezer, it's empty, say when there's no utilization, like in an off period. And so that ability to dynamically control and, and turn the refrigerator up and down in response to things like energy price and use is, is a way to create significant savings. And we're starting to do that now in the real world with a few early customers. 
So the customers are getting the benefit from a more efficient use of energy and thus reducing uh, their energy costs. Is there any other benefits that they that they can see from it? Yeah, I think that uh, typically the you know the customer is thinking about or the operator is thinking about can I get automation around stuff that's done you know four to eight times a day? And in some cases, if you have a large format space or a distribution center or a warehouse, that could be an hour to three hours of time uh, spent you know on task going around and checking temp logs. So we're automating that work and uh, you know saving time on task, putting that to use for higher value and more mission critical activities can't automate, for example, working with guests or training new employees. So that's one area of ROI, automation and, 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 and time on task saving, which matters a lot in a world where you know labor is tight and costs are rising and everyone is looking to do more with less. In addition, we're also helping to catch equipment issues. So because we can see the temperature and humidity curves, we're actually able to see in many cases when equipment is having problems, whether that's a wiring issue or a coolant leak or a compressor that's looking like it's going to go down or being overworked, we can see in the curves, in the temperature graphs, when equipment is actually struggling or when it's looking like it's not working correctly. And that often leads us to, to trigger or recommend an early intervention, whether that's a repair or replace cycle. Because these pieces of equipment are expensive, you know, and, and expensive is all relative, but a few thousand dollars or, or up to $10,000 can be a lot for a, a tight margin operation. We're able to help extend asset life. We're helping facilities and, and technician leaders uh, reduce last mile repair, which is both expensive and super disruptive. You know, nobody wants to be uh, without product or you know, with, with, with refrigeration down in the middle of a busy service interval on a Friday night. Um, that's the last thing you want uh, in a hospitality sector. And how many sensors do you have out there right now? Yeah, we've got over uh, 10,000 at this point in the world. And, and as you look at the energy use from prior to installation of of your sensor what have you found in terms of wasted energy well we've seen a lot of areas of of, of waste and some of them are you know uh, low-hanging fruit others require you know more long-term thinking some of the obvious areas are, are are when you know folks are just overcooling by five or ten degrees and we can make recommendations saying hey you can run the box warmer without worry you can do this with peace of mind we're giving you real-time data those are um, you know often just uh, user, you know, uh, preferences or, or, or local staff are basically choosing to set things extra cold just to be safe and extra safe. And we're able to kind of make recommendations. That's the low hanging fruit, you know, where you can just say, hey, this doesn't need to be quite so cold. The more ambitious and, and kind of longer term approach of turning the refrigeration unit up and down continuously, you know, meaning, you know, throughout the year, throughout the month, uh, in response to weather events, in response to electricity shortages in response to energy prices changing every week, every day, there we're targeting and starting to see the possibility of 10 to 20% energy savings uh, per month. That's pretty massive in terms of you know, savings on the bill. Uh, and we're seeing that in the real world in early uh, commercialization, early proof of concepts and, and pilots. And how does that work being able to time the grid optimally for whether it's when there's a lot of demand, so being able to do that, or even possibly when there's more renewables uh, on the grid to allow for renewable energy to drive the refrigeration. Yeah, there's a, a whole ecosystem of folks working on this. There's folks that are trying to predict weather. Um, there's folks that are trying to predict and, and map energy prices by market and by utility and by, you know, by rebate program or by, by government kind of subsidy. 
And then there are folks that are actually taking those signals and making, you know, calls or making uh, recommendations or requests. And we're working with a number of those players, folks that are actually interfacing between the utility and uh, sources of, of load like ours. You know, we have refrigeration assets that we work with. Uh, other players out there working with heating, ventilation, air conditioning, or cooking equipment, or heavy machinery. And so what happens is when there's a weather event or when the utility is dealing with a, a sudden unexpected surge in demand, could be a really hot day in the summer or an unexpectedly cold day in the winter, they put out what's called in some markets a demand response event. And that's really a way of saying, hey, we need folks to curtail their use and we will pay you to curtail your use. And what ends up happening is the call goes out, sometimes slightly in advance, sometimes a longer in advance. The, the, the lead time depends on the market. And then folks decide, uh, the people that have load, whether that's an individual, like a, you know, a residential user or a business or you know, intermediaries like ourselves. Hey, can we actually curtail? If so, let's lower use right now. By lowering use, we're able to help the grid and in the process get paid for that. So that's the, the mechanics, if you will. But the idea is it's meant to create grid flexibility and, and help balance, so to speak, the load and do that in ways that help reduce the total price and also the load, um, which can be a problem for grid infrastructure, can lead to things like brownouts and blackouts or worse. Um, so a lot of benefits to, to grid flexibility, both for consumers and ultimately for the long-term health of the grid. So it's just another source of cost savings in those demand response situations for uh, the consumer that they've got some flexibility on a refrigeration unit or something like that. So that just continues to expand the savings that they get to realize. Exactly. Exactly. Essentially, what we're doing is to turn their refrigerator into a battery. You can tap that battery. You can use the stored, you know, the, the energy store, the fact that stuff can stay cold for a while. You can tap it when the utility or the grid needs that power. And by turning your refrigerator into a battery temporarily, we're talking about a few minutes, uh, you know, at most a few hours, we're not talking about days, uh, you can actually create significant savings for yourself and in the process help out on the grid side. And that's one of the ways in which we're creating uh, energy optimization. We're also doing things like reducing the use of energy on refrigeration in markets where time of use rates vary. Uh, sometimes energy is more expensive, other times it's cheaper. A number of markets have various time of use rates. And so if you know what the time of use rate is and you know how much refrigeration is, is needed, you can actually decide, I'm gonna turn this on and use power when the time of use rate is lower, when energy is cheaper. I'm gonna turn it off when energy is more expensive. And so that's another way to create savings. That's called load shifting, essentially moving the load around from an expensive to a cheaper time. Refrigeration is a really good asset to do that with because it can store energy like a battery. And that allows you to be flexible in when and how you use it. So that's another thing we're doing. The Interchange is brought to you by Schneider Electric. Are you looking for more energy control, but worry about the upfront costs of a microgrid and renewables? We have you covered. 
Schneider Electric offers energy as a service for customers like you who spend $40,000 or more each month on energy. With energy as a service, you get customized solutions to help you meet goals for sustainability, efficiency, and cost control, including a microgrid and adjacent energy infrastructure. We also handle every step of the process and assume financial and operational risks. Upgraded electrical equipment, reduced emissions, predictable long-term pricing. Energy as a Service provides all of this and more. Visit www.se.com backslash US backslash EAAS to find out if Energy as a Service is right for you. And I assume there's some industries or situations where there's long periods of downtime uh, that now can be captured that they don't need refrigeration for weeks or even months at a time. Absolutely. And that, that's another area of energy efficiency and energy optimization. So there's a number when you start thinking about these types of uh, assets. You've got you know, certain organizations or certain types of uh, you know, industries where utilization might vary. You know, a typical uh, quick service restaurant like a McDonald's or a Starbucks is going to be busy you know, pretty much 365. But uh, you might have an industry like education where school is out for several months of the year. And if school is out and no one's using uh, the cafeterias or they're being lightly used, you might have a huge fleet of assets that aren't being touched for weeks or months. And that's an opportunity for curtailment, an opportunity to create efficiency. The way I think of it is sometimes, you know, when you walk down a street at night in a city, uh, I was in Manhattan a few weeks ago and I saw the lights were on late at night in a bunch of skyscrapers, office buildings. No one was in, you know, not just because of COVID, but, you know, it's the middle of the night. No one's in. And uh, the lights are still running at full tilt. You know, that just doesn't make sense and isn't necessary in a, in a world where you, know, you can put intelligence into these pieces of equipment. So I, I, it sounds like the ultimate end game here is to develop a system where it looks at the industry or the use of the power, uh, take a refrigeration and look at optimal times for the grid, whether there's a demand response situation, whether there's a, a lot of renewables that are on the grid or, or prices are high, feedback into an algorithm, uh, even with weather being added to that, that really looks to the most efficient use of the power and that's in those situations. Well put. <laughs> I think that's exactly right. The, you know, It's a combination of um, trying to create uh, intelligence and take advantage of real-time visibility on the piece of equipment and understanding what's going on in the energy landscape with the utility or the grid in terms of the need, the time of day, the energy price, what, you know, what's going on in the broader um, you know, supply and demand around these assets. And I think that we're seeing this opportunity become more and more relevant uh, with every passing week. I mean, this summer, there have been a whole bunch of extreme weather events. There have been energy shortages and multiple front page articles in the last few weeks about electricity prices soaring. I think right now, if you look at what's going on in Europe, you've got um, record high energy prices, electricity, uh, the forward uh, markets for the winter uh, in places like Germany and France and the UK are talking about you know, an order of magnitude, you know, 10x or higher prices on, on, on electricity. So that kind of um, massive, massive increase in, in, in costs, it's going to be super hard for businesses and super hard for consumers, for households. And so, um, 
you know, there are ways to, of course, alleviate that in many ways, some which involve, you know, changing how we purchase power, who we buy power from, what kind of sources of, of energy look like in the long term. But with all of the um, geopolitical instability in the world, with all of the constraints going on right now from, you know, natural gas and, and traditionals, I think uh, one way to help is to start using assets and pieces of equipment more intelligently. It's one part of the solution. And I think it's going to be more and more important, A, because of the rising prices and scarcity, and B, because um, grid failures and electricity shortages, I think, are, are, aren't going away, unfortunately. More and more stuff's getting electrified and more and more energy is being used. And, and you know, the math just doesn't square. Yeah, I mean, just look at where, where gas prices are right now. And people renewing their energy contracts are, are paying three, four times what what they were two years ago. I know me personally, I went to renew it and it was yeah. somewhere close to four times what it used to be. And I know we've talked a lot about kind of refrigeration and how that started, but where else, and you've touched on it a little bit, but where else do you see this applicable that could help with efficient energy use? Well, I think that, of course, at Thermo, we're very focused on cooling. And I think of cooling, you know, in the broadest sense as refrigeration and HVAC, heating, ventilation, air conditioning. So when we look at big sources of energy inefficiency and areas where you can bring intelligence in, uh, we're looking primarily through the cooling lens. Um, those are large and, 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 and massive industries. And I, I say massive is kind of, you know, it doesn't quite do it justice. There are 1.5 billion refrigeration units in the world, 90 million uh, commercial refrigeration units, just a lot of equipment out there. It's been around for hundred plus years. Um, and, uh, and it's growing rapidly. Refrigeration is growing at like 8% a year and 15% in the developing world. Um, and cooling, when you think of it as air conditioning, is growing like 33x by the end of the century, uh, by one estimate. I think Oxford had a study a year ago. 33x is just insane growth rates by the end of the century. Um, so when you think about the fact there's already millions of these units out there and it's growing you know, rapidly, uh, to me, there's you know, more opportunity then there is possible innovation and, and, and capital available to attack it. And that's just on cooling. I think this kind of approach to being dynamic and, and uh, intelligent about load management can apply to any source of energy uh, consumption, whether that's industrial equipment, uh, you know, EV, you know, electric vehicle charging stations, the way in which uh, you know, various uh, Manufacturing processes work. You can apply similar approaches to when and how power is used for big chemicals and big, uh, you know, heavy industrial use cases. And folks are, you know, for a couple of decades, some of the big industrial and uh, you know heavy manufacturing players have been doing some internal load balancing in the form of load shifting and, and shaving. They, they spend so much on energy that when energy prices vary, they've been kind of tweaking at the margin. But what hasn't happened, I think, is this hasn't been made widespread. It's not being done across the tens or hundreds of millions of assets and pieces of equipment out there. It's being done in kind of small pockets by a small group of folks that are super effective. I also think the residential market's massive. If you think about all the smart home, uh, you know, opportunity and all the you know pieces of equipment in our houses, um, you know, whether that's dishwashers and washer dryers or um, cooking equipment, or of course, <laughs> air conditioning and Refrigeration. There's just a lot of it out there, and, and most of it is not being run, you know, smart. It's being manually controlled and still, you know, very inefficient. And how is the adoption of Thermos sensors 
been? I mean, what have you seen uh, from your growth standpoint? Yeah, it's been very encouraging. Uh, we, we launched Therma uh, in early 20. Uh, we started selling Therma right as, uh, you know, maybe the worst, you know, external event to hit the hospitality sector in, you know, multiple decades hit. And despite that, we grew 3x, you know, in 20 and again in 21. You know, we've gotten from concept and 100 sensors to over 10,000, a little over two years. I'm encouraged by the, the interest and also the types of businesses that have been adopting the solution. You've got big players, you know, national and regional uh, operators of major brands. You know, some of the folks I mentioned, the McDonald's and Pizza Hut's and, and Burger Kings of the world. Um, and then you, we've also got, you know, a number of customers that are small and medium-sized businesses. You know, we have a lot of local uh, chains, you know, a three-location scoop shop, a 10-location uh, burrito joint, uh, you know, five-location pizzeria that's still owned by the family that started it. You know, I think these small and medium-sized businesses, what I love about working with independents is they need every single dollar. Their livelihood and their families livelihoods depend on, you know, those savings and that four to 10% margin that they're living off of. If we can help them reduce unnecessary waste, throwing food into landfills or burning up energy that doesn't need to be burned up, that's dollars that they're, you know, actually putting in their pockets. And and so I'm very excited that the technology is getting interest and adoption, both at the large corporate level and also at the independent SMB level. That's something I really wanted, you know, as a focus for, for, for any technology we built. Didn't want it to be something that only big and well-resourced companies could could adopt. Um, I think what's also exciting is that we're seeing, you know, interest and in, in adoption in multiple industries. It's not just restaurants. Uh, we've got folks across, you know, food service and uh, food retail and manufacturing and growing. You know, we work with farms, we work with brewers, we work with winemakers, uh, we work with um, you know, distribution centers, uh, convenience store operators, uh, you know, obviously love working with schools, K through 12, just you know, good people. I was a public school kid, so I guess I have a, a soft spot for anyone who works in education. You know, it's really, uh, you know, I think really important and underinvested in, uh, in our society. And we can, every dollar we can save for our, you know, our schools is, is a dollar that might be better spent on textbooks or teachers. So I think that these are, um, these are exciting indications. And we're just getting started. You know, we got 10,000 sensors in the world, 90 million pieces of refrigeration in the business world out there. The vast majority aren't monitored and optimized in real time. So, you know, barely scratching the surface here. And arguably, you hit the market at the right time. Uh, I mean, right, there was a big focus on cost reduction, particularly in some of these businesses that are, are very thin margin, right? And I mean, you definitely got to keep the, the breweries and the winemakers going <laughs> well i think they had you know i've read some statistics about you know the, the the kind of the growth tailwind that uh some of the you know uh, you know folks that you know sell you know adult beverages saw in the pandemic there was definitely a boost for a period of time in demand but i think dave the 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 point is well made which is that when you're dealing with and struggling with um, so many growth headwinds, you know, when you've got stores that are being shut, uh, public health guidelines that are changing every few months, uh, uncertainty about labor, you know, inability to, to kind of forecast and know, well, are people going to be back to in-store or in-person? Are they going to be you know, remote? 
How do I set up my operations? With all of this uncertainty, 2020 and 2021 were extraordinarily hard years to run a food or hospitality business. Still a very hard time, you know, with all the inflation and, st and, and kind of uncertainties out there in the world. But that all put pressure on owner operators and, and on management to say, okay, we've got to do more with less. We've got to save where we can. So in, in that sense, yeah, uh, Thermo launched at a really you know, appropriate and, 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 you know, in some ways uh, we, we, we couldn't have timed the introduction of the product better, especially in early 20, when we were telling folks, we can help you improve remote monitoring, help you improve safety and do it, you know, in locations that are lightly staffed. And that was a real problem in 2020. People didn't have as much staffing. They were shutting down stores randomly without knowing when they were going to reopen. So in many ways, yeah, we were, uh, our timing was, uh, was really spot on. Of course, no one wants to live through what we lived through in 2020 or 21 again. That was just terrible. But I'm glad we could provide something that could help businesses in a time that was pretty hard. Exactly. And I mean, even now with the inflationary pressures that everybody's experiencing, having the cost reduction option and also helping the environment from the more efficient use of energy uh, is, is definitely a positive. So we've had the Inflation Reduction Act that recently passed. From a policy standpoint, though, what, what are you seeing the environment like for, particularly for Therma? What's being done right? What should be being done? But also longer term, how are you finding that as beneficial to Therma as it relates to the overall energy transition? Really a great question and also you know, a lot to be thought through in terms of how do you put major government dollars to work effectively? You know, this is a, you know, arguably the most capital that's ever been committed for uh, energy transition and climate change directly. And so I think that what we're uh, reading and, and seeing is, you know, the early attempts to start changing the landscape around cost benefit. I think a lot of what's happening here is the IRA, the way in which the uh, government interventions are being structured are to help change the economics of moving into energy efficiency or moving into renewables. And changing the economics, for example, by uh, helping to create tax uh, incentives or helping to create government subsidies uh, or helping to uh, set up policies that encourage the transition into renewable production. So a lot of it is by moving the dollars around taxes and around subsidies to drive sector and, and consumer change. Some of the things that we're excited about are you know, credits that are going towards lowering you know, or, or investing in solar uh, panels and wind and you know, turbines and, and batteries. I think those are going to help reduce the cost of renewables. Those investments will help create more capacity, improve the, the, the technology stack, lower the cost of renewables. That's important. If you want to drive people into the future, you've got to also make it economically viable. And so renewables and the cost around them has to come down. I think we're seeing a lot of um, dollars being put into consumer, you know, home uh, rebates and credits, you know, whether that's for electrifying or energy efficiency retrofits or seeing, you know, just getting tax credits to, to residential users around things like rooftop solar, HVAC upgrades, uh, things like heat pumps. And those are going to help consumers by encouraging them and giving them dollars in their pockets for making investments or upgrading their homes, which hopefully will also save them money. I think those kinds of dollars flowing into the individual 
residential community will also drive innovation. Businesses and, and, and technology companies uh, respond to demand and respond to consumer interest. And so if you can prime the pump, if you can get more consumers and more residential players investing in upgrades, investing in retrofit, that's going to be good for, I think, the, the technology ecosystem that builds and, and scales those products. Um, so those are some of the areas you know, that, that we see kind of and, and believe are, are exciting, just general investments. Um, I think for Thermos specifically, we're hoping and, and believe that there's going to be more need for and more opportunity for uh, load management. Investing in renewables and electrification, which is what the IRA is going to do and put billions of dollars to work on, is going to mean even spikier loads. That's going to mean that grid balancing, load balancing, and, and being able to move energy around is going to be even more important. And so I think that that's going to make Therma's you know, energy optimization uh, work and, and, and solutions even more relevant and, and needed. Similarly, I think the electrification push, the fact that there's uh, investments going into electrification um, at the consumer level and then tax credits for businesses is going to actually lead to more interest in um, smart assets, smart, you know, everything, whether that's a, a fridge or a dishwasher or an HVAC system, it's going to make it easier to get people to say, okay, you should consider, you know, if you're buying a Nest or you're buying a Ecobee thermostat or you're putting a, you know, a smart uh, water pump or heater into your house, you should consider a smart fridge as well. Uh, and so I think that in general, the electrification and, and, and desire to get more people onto an electricity-based uh, you know, energy use will make it easier for us to, to get people excited about Therma. Um, and then things like reducing the cost of batteries, that's going to help us over time because we ultimately want to be able to take advantage of lower battery cost and store some of the refrigeration power that we're creating from refrigeration in batteries, traditional batteries. So those are some indirect ways we're going to benefit long-term. That's a great point. I mean, that's one of the things that I like about technologies such as Therma. I mean, there's been such hype and focus on wind, solar, uh, you know, that, that's the supply side. Uh, but there also needs to be stuff done on, on the demand side, which is the more efficient use of the energy that we have. And both of them go hand in hand to support the energy transition. And so when you're talking about all the credits and, and for wind and solar and going down to the technologies that help for a more efficient or even reduction of demand. There is, I think, you know, a lot that's been said about, um, you know, the supply side and a lot that needs to be done there. And to your point, Dave, you know, I think people have written about and policies that are being pushed around the you know, supply side, but there is also opportunity on the demand side, you know, and, and that's sometimes like low hanging fruit. You know, I, I grew up in a, in a home and because my parents were immigrants and my dad, you know, uh, you know, had literally, you know, just a couple of dollars when he first came to the U.S. in the early 80s, he was the kind of guy who walked around the room and would turn off the lights as soon as you leave the room. Or, you know, if the air conditioning was running, he would turn it off and open the windows. You know, and say, can we just use a little bit of natural AC here, guys? You know, and I grew up in the Central Valley in California, so we had a lot of air conditioning and a lot of heating. And, you know, I think that there's a certain, you know, it, it sounds kind of unsexy, energy efficiency, doing more with less. It's kind of boring stuff. It reminds me of my dad, you know, who, who wants to like think about turning the lights off when you're not in the room. But these are obvious and, and increasingly important ways to reduce the economic impact of a lot of the changes we're living through and the climate impact. And I think that's the other piece of it we haven't really spent a lot of time on. But I think that from a long-term standpoint, it's not just us as individuals and as business owners 
that are dealing with these rising costs. It's also the the planet and the the world around us that's having to absorb that inefficiency and is kind of paying the price. So we're eager to you know make an impact where we can. And speaking of that, how do you see Thermos technology and the climate impact? Well, I think that there's a couple of things we're doing that are measurable in uh, climate math and climate terms. One, we're trying to reduce equipment failure. And when equipment fails and it holds perishables, you know, whether that's proteins or dairy or other compounds, that's often thrown out. You know, that product either shortens its shelf life or gets thrown out. And you can just wrap that into a general kind of food waste statistic. There's just massive, massive amounts of food that are thrown out every year. Now, a third of all food that's made is thrown out every year, one third, which is kind of an astounding number. Now, some of that is because of storage and handling. Not all of it. There's a whole bunch of other reasons why food waste is a $1.6 trillion a year, $1.6 trillion a year problem. But you know, storage and handling is one of them. So we're trying to reduce food waste, especially down at the fork. When you've already put all this energy and effort into making product and getting it all the way to the restaurant, you know, the, the amount of resources that have gone into that steak or that piece of sushi or, you know, whatever's in that fridge or freezer to then throw that out because of equipment issues or, um, you know, human error or grid failures, that's just, you know, avoidable and, 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 and has a huge climate footprint. So we're trying to reduce food waste and we can measure that and we often sell on that ROI. And that's one benefit for the planet. The second is that we're reducing the energy footprint. Uh, and the energy footprint of refrigeration and cooling assets can be very large. It's a big source of uh, electricity use. But also, um, you know, if we can move the energy footprint around, if we can load balance, we can reduce the need for electricity to rely on peaker power plants. Peaker power is often expensive and dirty and much more so than, than, than normal operating uh, grids require. And so when, when the grid gets overwhelmed or stressed and has to turn on peaker plants, that's expensive for everyone and also costs the planet quite a bit. We're trying to reduce the need for peaker power by turning assets like refrigeration to intelligent and controllable load. So we're, we're trying to reduce the energy footprint and reduce the peaker footprint. That's also good for the planet. And the third is we're trying to reduce the, um, the leakage of coolants, of refrigerants into the atmosphere. Refrigeration and air conditioning use this type of chemical or chemicals called refrigerants. They enable cooling. They're what makes cooling possible. They've been around for 100 plus years. While they are necessary, they're also extremely warming. The current refrigerants that are used primarily around the world have between 1,000 and 10,000 times the warming effect of CO2. So they're ultra warming. And these refrigerants get leaked throughout the course of cooling assets life and at the end of life. So they kind of leak now, we allow a lot of leakage. The Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, the way the standards are written, we have pretty high ceilings on what's, what's permitted in terms of leakage events. Therma isn't catching refrigerant leaks directly, but we are catching equipment failure by looking at temperature and humidity curves. So in catching equipment failure early, we are sometimes helping to stem that coolant leak. We're sometimes intervening or getting the customer to actually intervene and, and, and repair or replace the problem before more coolant leaks. And so that's a way in which we're stemming or reducing the total refrigerant leak that's happening during life cycle. So those are the three things we're trying to do, Dave. Reduce food waste, reduce the energy footprint, both the general footprint and the peaker plant need, and then reduce the refrigerant leaks. And ultimately we want to turn that into a, a metric. We want to be able to say this is, a, you know, here's a CO2 equivalent. 
every time you put Therma into a location. We're working on that right now. That's great. I mean, that just goes back to the point. I mean, look, there's no big one savior for the energy transition. I mean, so much focus is on wind and solar, but again, it goes down to the demand side and being able to help support the the lower energy need, more efficient use of that need, uh, impacting carbon emissions. And then also you mentioned the food waste. So there's a lot of other aspects to the energy transition that are being done that are a number of pieces that, that fit together. It's not just going to be this one renewable source energy that's going to save the planet. Well said. <laughs> <laughs> So on um tell me a little bit about how Therma started from a from a financing standpoint. I mean how were you guys financed originally and also with what I see as some aggressive growth plans in the future how do you how are you finding the financing environment and how do you plan to capitalize yourselves going forward? Well, I think there's always um you know there's always a question about how does one uh bring technology into the world at scale. Um you know that that question if you believe in what you're building is often a question of resources and timing. We started by bootstrapping. When we first got started as entrepreneurs, my co-founder Aaron and I decided we were gonna bootstrap, you know, in essence, kind of self-fund for a period of time and try and you know, grow through revenue. We eventually raised outside capital. Um, and so Thermo, since we've, we've been kind of uh, going, has been you know, largely built through external venture-based capital. And the venture community, much ink has been spilled and you know, much has been said about venture capital investing. I think one thing that VCs are good at is um, recognizing when technology has the potential to transform a sector and being willing to take risky you know, and, and ambitious bets. What they charge for doing that, what the price of the capital is, that varies based on the time and the market, um, how much capital you can raise, you know, how many people will have to say no to or have to say no to you before you get a yes. Those are always, you know, a question of what's going on in the, in the world as much as what you're building. But I'm happy to say that, yeah, we are venture capital backed and we do see um, an opportunity to keep building for scale if we can grow and, and, and demonstrate the kinds of efficiencies, reducing food and labor and energy cost for our customers. I think that, you know, we'll continue to see an opportunity to partner with uh, VCs. And so uh, we raised capital in 2020, in April and May of 20 can tell you that was not a fun time to raise capital. You can imagine going out saying, oh, we've got this great product. It's going to help restaurants and hotels and you know, uh, hospitality businesses and schools. And you know, the response was generally, well, all those are great, except none of those businesses are open. <laughs> and we don't know when they're going to open again. So uh, good luck. Um, so that was like a very, very challenging economic environment to raise capital for this kind of business. Um, when we started raising our latest round, started this summer, you know, again, challenging time. My wife jokes that I have a knack for, for timing our fundraising to, uh, to macro, you know, environments downturning. But the April, May, we saw a reset in, in the capital markets. Prices came down of stocks, especially the technology sector. And so um, you know, that always makes it a little bit more fun. It sounds like me when buying and selling a house. Uh, never the right time. <laughs> I always pick the worst time. One has a sense of humor um, about these things, but you know, we're trying to build for the long run. So I try not to be deterred by what happens any given quarter. Monik, th this has been a great conversation. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. What can we expect from Therma going forward? Great to be on. I appreciate the opportunity. We're going to keep putting one foot in front of the next, trying to make cooling cleaner. So I uh, would love for folks who are interested in checking us out to follow us on social. We're on uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. We're also hiring. 
It's hellotherma.com. Hello, H-E-L-L-O, therma, T-H-E-R-M-A.com. If you ever want to chat, I'm Monik, M-A-N-I-K at hellotherma. We'd love to, to get introduced. It's always fun to do these conversations. So thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks. Looking forward to seeing your progress. Awesome. Appreciate it. The RE Plus Conference is the clean energy industry's largest and most comprehensive event in North America. It's taking place this year in Anaheim, California from September 19th through September 22nd. Wood McKenzie is excited to be attending the conference this year, and we hope to see you there on the floor. To learn more about RE Plus, including how to buy tickets, visit woodmac.com backslash RE Plus. Thank you.